thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. If you're a guest joining us uh, here this morning or online, you know, thank you for being with us. As a church, we really exist to help people find and, and know Jesus in a personal relationship and then to equip them to follow Jesus in their life. And, um, you know, one of the most important ways that we grow as believers in Christ is through hearing and reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're doing that, um, in first service, there was more red. I guess they were all going to the game. You guys are late, I guess. You know, you're going to watch the game. And, and I kind of jokingly said to him first service, I said, you know, I wish you guys were as excited about church as you are about the Chiefs. Some guy stood up in the back. And he, he goes, well, if you preached like the Chiefs played, we would be. I'm just kidding. I made that up. I made that up. So I can't promise you I can preach like the Chiefs play. But I can promise you that what the Word of God has to say is applicable to your life. And that my role is to help you understand it and to model for you how in studying the Bible we can put it into practice in our lives. And so that's what we're going to do this morning just to give you a, an overview, just to keep the big picture in mind as we look at the book of Ephesians. Today, we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And at the beginning of chapter 4 is a switch in direction of the book and its themes. So the whole book is, is about the church, the new community that God has forged. But the first half of the book, the first three chapters, are really about our identity in Christ, our position in Christ. It's about the theological truths, about the foundation of the gospel. It, it's those things that were given to us or granted to us or that God did in us because we came into a saving faith with Jesus Christ. The second half of the book, which we begin today, now moves from theological truths to practical exhortations. It, it moves from a position in Christ to the practice of our faith. It moves from beliefs to behaviors. And so now we're going to move into a section of the book that has a lot of practical exhortations for you and I as the body of Christ and for each of us individually as a follower of Christ. You know, Paul is writing to this church in a town called Ephesians or Ephesus. The book is Ephesians. And, and you may not be real familiar with where that is or what it was like um, in Asia at the time that Paul is writing. But if you think of a Chicago or a Los Angeles, uh, a, a very central, important hub, one of the 
seven major cities of the world, so to speak, um, or, or, or of Rome. That's kind of what Ephesus is like. And so I'd like to read our text this morning, and then I'm going to give you our main idea, and we're going to pray, and then we'll unpack this section of Scripture and see its bearing for us as the body of Christ locally here at Journey Bible Church, as well as individual believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, Paul the Apostle is writing, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. So as we unpack this section of Scripture, here's kind of our main idea. A healthy church walks together in unity. The whole idea of the first 16 verses of chapter 4 are about church health. These six verses are about health expressed in unity. The next verses that we'll look at next week, 7 through 16, are about health expressed in maturity. And the two go together. Actually, unity precedes maturity because we are given our unity together in Christ. So let me pray for us. God, as uh, we come to your word, I pray that you would speak into the lives of each one of us, that you would show us which of these areas that we might need to be working on, that you might be trying to forge in us more Christ-like behavior and thinking and attitudes. Help us not to resist, Holy Spirit, as you show us the things you want us to learn, individually and as a church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is an article called The Health Risks of Sitting at Home. It's written by uh, Joseph Mercola, and he writes about the lockdowns and the isolation that people went through and the side effects um, that that had on people's health. Here's some of the things he writes. Decades of fitness research remind us that physical activity is one of the best preventative measures available to help us avoid disease. It's one of the pillars of good health alongside nutrition, sleep, and hydration. That reality holds even more significance now as we deal with COVID-19 and the physiological fallout of social distancing and lockdown measures that disrupted daily routines that already included too much junk food and sitting around. Evidence has demonstrated the effect that exercise has on sleep quality, mental health, heart disease, and metabolic conditions. In one meta-analysis of 305 randomized controlled trials, including 339,274 participants, researchers compared exercise with drug interventions on mortality in diabetes and heart disease. They found there was no statistically detectable difference in those who used exercise or those who took medication in the prevention of coronary heart disease and diabetes. Now, one disclaimer right here, listen to your doctor, okay? 
In fact, exercise was found to be more helpful than prescription drugs for those who had previously suffered a stroke. Physical activity is also a key for longevity, a long life. Those who engage in regular exercise have reduced risk of all-cause mortality. As discussed in another study published in JAMA, researchers concluded that cardiorespiratory fitness was inversely associated with all-cause mortality. Now, those of you that don't speak, research speak. What he is saying there is that fitness is good for you. It will keep you alive. And a lack of fitness means you're going to die earlier and quicker. And that's what the research tells us. Now, how many of you know that you should hydrate? How many of you know you should eat nutritiously? How many of you know you should sleep seven or eight hours every night? Okay. How many know you should exercise? All right. I want anybody who's doing all four of those perfectly to raise their hand. Okay, I got some people with a half hand up. I'm not sure what that means, okay? But, but the reality is, do you know that that stuff's good for you? Are you doing it like you should? Why do we have that propensity? You know, it's the same thing in the church. We know the things that are good for us as a community of faith. We know the things that are good for us as followers of Jesus. And yet many times... We do the opposite of what is good for us. I want you to look at this passage. I want to just highlight kind of the main idea here, and then we'll unpack all the verses. And I want you to notice that Paul starts with a therefore. And, and really, a therefore, you, you can always ask the question. I was always taught, what's the therefore, therefore? Now, that's how I was taught. So is it talking about a connection to the verses that just happened, or is it talking about a connection to all that's preceded? I think in this case, Paul is basing um, what he's about to say based on everything he said in the first chapters. And notice what the main idea that Paul wants to get across is that he wants to urge us to walk in a manner worthy. He wants to urge he wants to press into us the importance and remind us of the significance of walking in a manner worthy. And we're going to talk more about that walk. But in the New Testament and in Paul's letters and specifically in Ephesians, walk is a metaphor for our lifestyle, our manner of life. So he's saying, I want you to live out a life that's worthy with all the things I just told you about what God's done for you who you are in Christ, how the Holy Spirit has sealed you, how the Father has adopted you and loved you. Now, I want you to have a walk that matches the talk. And what he's focusing on in this passage is down here in verse 3. He wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So he's urging us to walk worthy, and that walking worthy, he's going to use that phrase four more times, I believe, in the chapters that follow besides just here. And he wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, this is pretty important to realize is you and I walk worthy because 
of the fact that we were created for that walk. Notice what it says when we looked at Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So when you came to Christ, you uniquely, different from everybody else, God prepared beforehand who you would be in Christ, and he is prepared for you to walk your walk, to live your life, to adopt a lifestyle of doing good as God says is good. You should walk in them. Then I want you also to notice that he wants us to realize that we should maintain the unity of the Spirit, not create unity. You and I don't create unity. That's already done for us. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Jeff preached, he talked about the mystery and he talked about the ministry. And in verse 3, 6, it says, the mystery, this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So the Jews and Gentiles, there, there's not two groups. There's not a Jewish synagogue and, 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 a, and a Gentile church. There's now one community, Jews and Gentiles. Both are fellow heirs. Both are members of the same body. Both are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you and I are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is our responsibility. God has unified us. He has brought us together. He's put us in the same body. We belong to the same family. And we are unified in Christ. And He wants us to maintain that unity. A healthy church walks together in unity. A church that's seeking to extend and expand Christ's kingdom in their community and in the world must walk together in the same direction with the same heart following the same master. Now, what's really beautiful about this section of Scripture we're going to pack, unpack a little further is that in these six verses, he gives us three elements of unity, three things that that you and I can leverage for our unity. Three components that we have that allow us to experience a more profound unity, to maintain, but also foster and develop and deepen our unity. So let's look at these three. And the first one is this. We have a unity because we have the same calling. We can walk together in unity because we had the same gospel calling. We walk in unity because we experience the same call to salvation. No one in here had a different call to salvation. It's one salvation through Christ, and we were all called. Now, the situation around our callings may have been different, but we share that same calling. I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's interesting. Paul uses both the noun and the um, verb form uh, of the same word. And he's kind of doubling up on it because he's making an important statement. He wants us not to miss it, right? Now, I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard of a student organization called Student Mobilization? Okay. 
They have a summer discipleship program called kaleo. That's this word. The Greek word, both in the noun and verb form, the, the verb form is kaleo. Um, kalesis is, is the noun form. That's the word that's doubled down on here. And that word means to call or summon. It means to invite. And specifically, it means an invitation for someone to experience special benefits. God invites us into a relationship where we can experience His work of forgiveness, His work of making us new and redeeming us and reconciling us. And so Paul is saying that calling that you and I had is a, we all had the same calling. We, we all were invited to join the body of Christ. And we share that together. It is a source for you and I to have unity. Now, there's one thing here that's just beautiful, and I want you to notice this, because I wouldn't have written it this way. Of course, I'm not Paul, and I'm not inspired, but notice what he writes. He wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. You know, if I was writing, I probably would write a prisoner of Rome, because you know what? That's what I am. For several years, I have been imprisoned by the Roman authorities. And why? Maybe I wouldn't write a prisoner of Rome. I might, I might write a prisoner of the Jewish scoundrels if I was Paul. Because if you'll remember, the Pharisees, out of jealousy, got Paul false accusations made against him that got him in prison. And he actually, at one time, when he appealed to Caesar, he could have been set free. But Paul's calling to Christ and in Christ and with Christ is so dominant in his life, he doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome or of the Jewish scoundrels. He sees himself in light of who he is belonging to the Lord. So if he's a prisoner, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Man, what a perspective. How would that change the way we see the world if we had Paul's adopted view of our calling in Christ and with Christ and for Christ. You and I have been chosen. We've been adopted, we've been redeemed, and we've been made new. These are all declarations of reality in the first chapters of the book of Ephesians. So you and I share that. We share being forgiven. We share the work of the Spirit making us new. We share the journey from darkness to light. We, we share the journey from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We, we, we share this idea from death to life and all that goes with it. You and I are new creatures. That calling through the gospel, we all share. And it's a source of unity. And that means that you and I should choose to walk worthy of that calling, to see ourselves and see others in that light. When you see a fellow believer, I hope you don't see one in opposition to you, no matter what the subject matter is. A fellow believer is someone who's been redeemed, adopted, chosen, and made new. So number one, we can have unity based on our calling. Second, we can have unity by embracing gospel conduct. We can walk together in unity because you and I pursue the same 
gospel conduct. We choose to embrace gospel-oriented characteristics in the way that we live with each other. That's what the verses 2 and 3 are all about. I want you to notice these words, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are all um, either Christ-like characteristics or fruit of the Spirit. Humility. Seeing yourself the same way that God sees you. Taking the position of a servant the way Christ took his position as a servant. Humility. Not pride. Not protection of self. But focusing on lifting up Jesus and seeing ourselves in light of what Christ has done for us. Gentleness. You know, I turn on the news and I just see gentleness everywhere. Do you know what gentleness is defined as? Gentleness is when you have strength under control. We live in a harsh and angry and defiant society. And so to have unity, we need gentleness. We need strength under control. We need our strength to show up as tenderness and compassion under control rather than as a rant or an attack or an assault. Patience. Anybody have the King James Version in here? I'm just curious. I think it says long-suffering here, which means to suffer long. It's this idea of patience is when you and I accept delays and troubles and trials and suffering without losing our temper or losing sight of what God is doing. That's what Paul did. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I haven't lost sight of what God's doing. I'm stuck in prison. But the course, the trajectory, the meaning, the purpose of my life has not changed. Bearing with one another in love. I, I love that, bearing with. What does that suggest to you? It suggests that maybe we got to work on stuff a little bit. Here's, here's the way I'd like to put the idea of bearing with one another in love. Don't let the people in this church get under your skin. Bring them under your love. So you and I get to make a choice. Do we let people get under our skin or do we bring them under our love? Love is always seeking the highest good for that person not necessarily seeking the easiest convenience for us. Then there's peace. Wholeness. Harmony. The way I would put this is, um, when you have something that has a lot of friction, if you grease it or oil it, it runs smoother. If you have a fire and you throw gasoline on it, it blows up. What kind of Christian are you? Are you one that greases and oils things? Or are you one that throws fire, I mean, throws gasoline on fire? You and I get to choose our conduct, humility, gentleness, patience, love, peace. These are conducts. These are actions. These are behaviors as well as attitudes that we can embrace to foster and maintain the unity of our church. 
Alexander the Great was um, out conquering countries. And um, he came across a, a person who shared his name, Alexander, and found out that this man was a coward. And he said, either change your way of life or change your name. You know, as Christians, as Christ followers, some of us may need to hear, change your way of life or use a different name. We're to walk worthy of the calling. We are to walk worthy in our conduct. You and I must pursue these qualities. And we know that when we do, the Holy Spirit enables us through, through His power and enlightenment to do these. One practical application. Maybe you look at that list of them, and one of those is like, yeah, I'm really struggling with that. Find someone who will pray for you. And then ask them, which of those are you struggling for? And pray for each other. Pray for that attribute, that characteristic, that it would work itself into your heart and through your hands and your feet into the way that you live. So first, we have the same gospel calling. Second, we share the same gospel conduct. And then third, we should share the same essential gospel convictions. By the way, when you look at Bible churches like ours, evangelical Bible churches, we tend to almost focus exclusively on our unity being based on the doctrinal realities that we share in common. But I want you to know that in this passage, that's only one part of our unity. Our unity must be maintained by the way we see our calling and see others' calling as the same as ours and by the way we live our conduct. Notice what Paul does then. He goes into a series of statements about the reality of the truths that they hold in common at the church in Ephesus. We hold these in common too. I just want you to know this is not intended to be the exhaustive list in the New Testament. In other churches, based on other circumstances, there is slightly different lists. And when you put them all together in the New Testament, you have an exhaustive list of the things that we need to know. But he says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul's making a statement that these are essentials that you and I hold together. Many think this was actually developed from a creedal formula that they may have been reciting in the early church in Ephesus at this time. And I want you to notice that he starts with one body. You and I belong to one church, one body. There's not a Jewish synagogue and a Gentile church. The early church said, no, what we understand is that there's one new community in Christ. You and I are members of that one body. We are all members of the universal church. You can be American, you can be Russian, you can be Iranian. You can be a person of any race from any place. If you know Jesus Christ and you have that same gospel bringing promise to your life, you and I are part of the same body. Paul's saying also, though, that those that belong to the universal church always identify themselves with a local church of some kind of expression to build community where they are. One body, 
one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that convicts and enlightens and imparts divine life. The Holy Spirit who baptizes and indwells and seals and fills the believer. One Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope. It's an interesting phrase there because earlier in the, in the book, Paul said that anybody apart from Christ has no hope. None. Zero. Nada. I want you to think, what is hope? When you're living with hope, what is that? When you have hope, you're grabbing on to an expectation of a preferable future. You are looking down the line and you see something fantastic coming your way. You and I share. We were called into the one hope that belongs to our call. That one hope is that you and I will be with God forever. That one hope we have is because we are in Christ. Amen? And you know what's coming? A new body. A new kingdom. A new heaven. A new earth. You know what's coming? A return of Jesus Christ. All of these are a part of our hope. We share that. We have one hope based in Christ. One Lord. Here he's saying that there aren't many lords. There's one Lord, one Messiah, one Jesus Christ, one who was born of the virgin, one who lived a sinless life, one who died a sacrificial death, one who rose supernaturally from the grave, one who now sits at the right hand of the Father, one who is coming soon. One Lord. One faith. Here, faith stands for the body of beliefs that have been delivered to us, have been revealed to us through the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets in the Old Testament. You and I have one body of beliefs that have been handed to us in the New and the Old Testaments. There's only one faith. By the way, there aren't many religions. There aren't many gods. There is one God. There is one faith. There is one Lord. There is one Spirit. Isn't it beautiful that all the Trinity is expressed several times in the book of Ephesians and right here. One baptism. I don't think that he has in, in mind here the idea of water baptism. He, he could, but I think he, the way that he's focusing on these things, I think he's focusing on the reality that the Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. The Spirit is the one who does that work. But in the New Testament, no believer baptized into the body of Christ would ever have thought of not getting baptized in immersion in water to declare what had happened inwardly in their lives. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is sovereign over all, who is reigning over all. You know, it's really interesting. Probably the idea of Father comes closest to us in the New Testament. For most Jewish people, they wouldn't even speak the name of God out loud. And the concept of God intimately associating with them as a Father, a tender, loving, caring, protecting, providing Father was unusual for them. But when they asked Jesus, well, we watch how you pray. And they asked Jesus, well, how do we pray? And he says, well, pray like I pray. Our Father. That was absolutely new instruction to them. 
When Jesus was about his work, he called it the Father's work. When he prayed for unity, he prayed that you and I would be unified in John 17 as he and the Father are one. So this concept of a Father who loves us, who's not just sovereign and supreme, but who's interested in our lives, engaged with us on a day-to-day basis, all of these things you and I share in common. These are essential truths. Now, there are non-essential truths. There are things that you and I can debate about and don't have to agree on. And we can just give each other love in leeway. So, for example, I believe one of the convictions for me to have unity is that you and I have to believe that the Word of God is God's delivered truth to us. It's not man's best attempt at figuring out who God is. Amen? That, that, that for us to have unity as the body of Christ, we need to hold that together and we need to hold that clearly. However, some of you think that the only way Pastor Mike should ever preach is through books of the Bible. Okay? Others of you think that the only way Pastor Mike should preach is topically because that's what Jesus did. And so I'm here to tell you that's not an essential. We don't have to agree on it. And I'm going to do both. Because that's how the Lord has led so far. My favorite is what we're doing right here, walking through books of the Bible, because I never have to figure out what the next thing coming is. And I know exactly what it is. But that's not an essential. In the 1600s, there was the 30-year war. It began as a war based on religious differences. Eight million people ended up being slaughtered in this war about religious differences, specifically a lot of them about Christian religious differences. Now, that war expanded into all kinds of political things and changed the landscape of Europe. But the reality is, during that time, a pastor came out and he wrote these words. He said, in the essentials, we need unity. In the non-essentials, we need liberty. And in all things, as the church of Jesus Christ, holding these convictions, we need love. Boy, does that not sound like something our society needs? But it's got to start right here. It's got to start with us. We have to give each other leeway in love on non-essential issues. We have to hold firmly to those convictions that would destroy our unity. And at all times, like Christ, whether it's with an enemy or a friend, we should show love. We base our unity on shared convictions, not uniformity on all subject matter. You with me, church? As a matter of fact, in the passage we're going to look at next week, diversity is one of the greatest joys that God has in putting together his church and distributing his gifts. Unity, not uniformity. Unity with diversity. You and I share a gospel calling. You and I should share the same gospel conduct. And we should share solid gospel convictions. That's how we maintain our unity with each other. Let me pray for us. God, we recognize that um, you long for us to be unified, that when Christ on the night 
um, that he was being betrayed, prayed. He prayed for our unity. He, he prayed for us to be one as he and the Father are one. He prayed for us to be sanctified in truth. Lord, we acknowledge that oftentimes um, we're more worried about our pet peeves than we're worried about your kingdom. So Lord, help us as a church to be unified around these three things, our calling, our conduct, and our convictions. And help us, Lord, to major on the majors and to show love to everyone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.